I want to uh, encourage you to open up your Bible to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be in Paul's letter to the Ephesians once more here and uh, rounding off this chapter, the fourth chapter. So I'm going to read to you from verse 26 of Ephesians 4. And we'll read through to chapter 5 and the second verse. He writes this. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Father, we ask that, Lord, you will ignite the power of your word that penetrates our hearts, Lord, to change the way we think and feel to make us more like you. In the name of your Son, amen. Well, evidently we are interested and have been interested really all throughout this, this series in Ephesians in the theme of what the church is meant to be. And there are multiple ways in which you can think about the church. You can think about her in terms of her, 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 what she is in her theolo theological reality is the bride of Christ, is the new temple the, the, in which the Holy Spirit dwells. And we've looked at all these sorts of ideas um, over the recent weeks as we've opened up this book. But really, when it comes down to your own experience of church, it has to do with your relationships, doesn't it? And what Christ wants of you in terms of how you relate to your brothers and sisters in Christ if you're a Christian. And I want to make the assumption, of course, that all of you are Christian here. But what you'll begin to understand is some of the power and the dynamic by which the church ought to, and is called to operate. And perhaps your experiences of church up to this point have been off-putting to you. And maybe the Lord will help you to see something of what the church is meant to be, its beauty and power, and how it can actually change your life. So how does the Lord want you to relate to the church if you're a Christian? And obviously, I think that there are a number of options that are ruled out immediately for us. We're not permitted, are we, to maintain a distance from the church, to be people who um, claim to have a spirituality, perhaps even to be followers of Jesus, but whose relationship with the church is tenuous to non-existent. And uh, I know that this is commonplace for many people who call themselves Christian, that they have no meaningful engagement with church as a community. They maintain arm's length. And I want to say at the outset, as powerfully, emphatically as I can, that is absolutely not an option for a Christian. Everything that Paul writes about in this letter and everything he assumes in the passage we just read 
assumes that you are deeply embedded in the church as a community. So ask yourself at the outset, is that true of you? And what must you do in order for that to be the case? I think it's also worth saying that even if you're part of a church, you're not expected to maintain a kind of passive or distant stance from the church. It's possible to be regularly involved in the rhythms of church, but really to be a kind of isolated individual living at the fringes of church life. And again, I want to say that this isn't an option for us as Christians. We're meant to open up our lives, aren't we? Paul said this about visiting one of his churches, that, that, that we share with you our very selves. And it's a constant challenge for us that we're not allowed under Christ's lordship to be people who maintain a kind of and that, that very English posture of an Englishman's home as his castle in which we, are, we, we, we kind of are involved, but in an almost professional or a, a cold way. It's not an option for us. And I also want to just say, I know some of you perhaps are, are carrying wounds that you've lived with frustrations or hurts or bitterness because of things done to you in church or by other Christians and uh, relationships that have, that have dissolved or have broken down or become dysfunctional. And that stuff can affect you for a long time. It can really, it can affect how you relate to God's people and greatly inhibit your ability to be free among the people of God. And I've had so many conversations with people over the years who bear the scars and carry the wounds of, of just the fallout of being among people, being among community, being among sinners. And therefore, listen, the call is for all of us to really address the question of how it is that the Lord wants us to relate to his people. And the ideal here is the deep and authentic community. A passionate, self-giving experience of the family of God. Now, this is where theory and reality can easily collide. And we find a kind of discord between the theory of living out family and community and the reality of what it feels like in, in practice. Because I think all of us to a man would agree that the notion of community is a beautiful idea and that it would heal and can heal so many of the ills that we see in people these days. We're looking at an absolutely catastrophic epidemic of loneliness, the rise of mental health issues and depression and all the fallout that comes from the fragmentation of relationships. And therefore, it's it's part, I think it's part of the church's mission to recover the vision of community as it was always designed to be, not as an addendum or an appendage to the gospel, but actually as part of the gospel, that Christ saved you and called you into the experience of family, and that to be a Christian is to now be part of the family and to experience family. There's a theory, and all of us can see that that could be something beautiful, magnificent, worth laying your life down for. But what, let me ask you, what is the challenge of building community with other people? And the answer is people. People are the problem here. And no sooner do you begin to expose your life to the, the vulnerability of knowing and being known and living in intimate relationship and alongside other people, no sooner do you do that than you begin to experience some of the frustrations and the limitations and the disappointments that follow along from that. This is true very generally in life, isn't it? You know, I have 
had the, the honor and the privilege so often of offering pre-marriage counseling to, to couples who are on their way towards marriage. And there's an eagerness in the eye. So often they look at you like there's no reason for us to be here because things are great with us. We are deeply, madly, passionately in love with each other. And so they're kind of just going through the motions when they sit on your sofa. And of course, all of that wonderful expectation of the beauty of intimacy can easily come crashing down. On, in the honeymoon, when you suddenly discover that the person that you have married is as human as you are and has all the habits and foibles and irritations, they snore, they smell, there's all the things. And that, of course, I'm not referring to my wife. She's absolutely <laughs> just perfection personified. But I mean, the, in general, I'm speaking, speaking in general terms here, of course. And so you discover reality, and reality means that your expectations, your hope come crashing down. It's true of, of family generally, isn't it? We all, um, those of us who have extended family, you eagerly and feel excitement about gathering with your extended family for large family gatherings. We've had holidays, we do Christmases, those kinds of things where you get together with your relatives. And all of those expectations can quickly come crashing down when someone utters a careless, offensive word, someone's stressed out at dinner, something just triggers one of you, and then quickly all the family frictions begin to resurface and begin to dominate the atmosphere. And this stuff is just, just normal, right? We, we all are familiar with the, the, the great chasm there is between the theory of community or a family and the reality of living alongside people who disappoint one another. Now, if this is true of your earthly and biological families and those intimate relationships that you enjoy, it is also true, I'm afraid, of the church. And as much as we are passionate and desire to build a church that is a community, that is a family, that, that, that walks in the blueprint that's laid down for us in the New Testament, we are constantly dealing with the, the disappointments that we experience with one another. And I can think of so many things that, that occur in relationships and that, that cause us to experience the frustration of dealing with very just often strange and semi-sanctified people. And I think about things like the fact that, you know, you, you will, you'll, you'll be in a gathering, there'll be someone there who, um, all they do every time you get together is talk about their problems. Never ask you a question. Never show any interest in you, because all they're doing is talking about their problems all of the time. And it tests your ability to love them, doesn't it? I think about somebody who never replies to your invitations. You know, you send a text, you, you ask for an RSVP, they never reply. Whether they show up or not is just a roll of the dice. You know, they ghost you. I, I was ghosted by a pastor once, believe it or not. You know, th this is just commonplace these days. The person who's just brazenly hypocritical, who is quite obviously living a double life and is barely even trying to hide it. And, you know, that, that can be deeply aggravating and frustrating for us when we're trying to pursue Christ together. The person who is just a religious prig. Prig, I said, just to make sure you... <laughs> yeah, could easily be misheard, right? So... It's not an offensive word. Um, who takes any and every opportunity to display their spirituality, the theological knowledge, the reading, the learning, their, their extended prayers, all these kinds of things. And it grates on you, doesn't it? The person who um, is, you know, a city slicker with their sparkling teeth, who goes on holidays to Europe every other weekend and then loves to come back to life group and tell everyone about it. You think, well, 
Lucky for you, friend. <laughs> you know? um, and there's, there's so many other things. The person who manages to insult everybody without even realizing it, the person who's critical all the time despite never having ever built anything in their life whatsoever or led anything successfully. There are just so many problems that we encounter being with other humans because we are flawed creatures. And so the massive question that we ask, and I think the question that's driving, driving, driving Paul when he's writing this, this letter is, how can we be the people of God as we're called to be? And some of the answers that we've been exploring have been profoundly theological. But we've been drilling into some of the more practical teaching that he gives in the second half of the letter. And that's where we are today once more. How can we keep pursuing each other to build something that's beautiful and authentically real in terms of our experience of love and community as a family together? And I hope that you are on board with that vision. And that you'll ask this question with me. And really, there are two great answers that he gives to us in this passage. And they are look in and then look up. Look in and then look up. And I want to explore each of those ideas in turn. The first is this, that we're called to look inwards. What I mean here is that, well, in the background here, in terms of how I read this passage, is that this understanding that the Bible so often encourages us to a posture of self-examination. That before you see problems with others, you are first of all invited to look at the problems in your own heart. And this is a deeply challenging exercise because as humans, we are expert in finding the faults with others. It's much harder to find the faults with ourselves. You know, I make no secret of the fact that I have almost... I'm in, I'm in the lower percentile of sporting abilities, okay? Put me on any pitch and I'll be a disappointment. But put me in front of a television watching a game, even a game I don't understand, and I'm very happy to offer full commentation on how they could improve their play. And of course, this is just part of human nature. We always think that it's easy to see how others could do things better. What an idiot. You know why? Pass the ball. Isn't that the... Pass the ball. That kind of thing. But obviously, doing these things ourselves is an immense challenge. And this is, this is something that Christ called out in his um, teaching. I think, for example, of Matthew... In, the, in, in Matthew chapter 7, in the Sermon on the Mount, when he said this. And he's really ridiculing this, this, this aspect of human nature. He says, why do you see the speck? And here he's a carpenter speaking about an experience he must have had. Hundreds of times, sawing a piece of wood, a piece of, a tiny piece of sawdust flies in your eye. It says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Let, well, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, he says. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And it seems to me that when we read a passage like this one in Ephesians, rather than reading it and thinking, oh, well, I wish so-and-so heard this, you know. I really wish I, you know, I hope that that person's at church today. The first and most urgent call is for you to look at your own heart, to look inwards and consider yourself. I believe that, that the vast majority of problems and friction that exist within family and within community be resolved if all of us took a posture of humility in which we look at ourselves before we criticize others. 
And so as we're looking in, Paul really poses four questions about your state of heart here in this passage. And I want to pose those questions to you like this. The first one is this. Is your heart at peace? Is your heart at peace? He says in verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Now, the first thing you notice here is the strange and surprising endorsement of anger. Um, most of the time when anger is referenced in Scripture, unless it's the anger of God, most of the time when anger is spoken of in Scripture, the call is not to indulge anger. And uh, Christ is particularly strong on this again in the Sermon on the Mount. Most anger is wrong. Much anger is wrong. However, we also know that anger can be appropriate, can be good, can be righteous. And in fact, I'll go further and say that sometimes apathy, the inability to be angry about a situation or about someone's conduct or behavior, indicates a fundamental lack of love in your soul, maybe even hatred. Anger it can be a wonderfully helpful emotion at times. You see, for example, how the Apostle Paul experiences incredible anger around the legalism that set in in the church in Galatia. He says, who has bewitched you? And then he, he, he says, I wish that those who were teaching these, these things would castrate themselves. And he talks about how he, he confronted the Apostle Peter for his failure to eat with Gentiles. He says, I opposed him to his face. So he's saying, look, there's a place for anger in the Christian life. If we, if we don't feel angry about things from time to time, then it, it indicates a problem with us, that we don't care about holiness, that we don't care about the health of the community, we don't care about others, really. And it is absolutely appropriate when you see God's people being damaged by something or by someone that a measure of anger begins to rise in your heart. And there have been times, I'll confess, as a pastor, when I have been angry. And I don't think it's been wrong. I think, for example, on one occasion, we had a young man in the church who had a, um, a falling out with Jeremy. And I like to tell this story because in this story, um, Jeremy was the one who was disliked instead of me, which, as you all know, <laughs> is very unusual situation. Um, as we met, met with this young man to, to begin to try and search for some reconciliation, the bile that came out of his mouth, the false accusations, the out-and-out out lies angered me. And we were patient with him, and we talked with him, and we tried our best to try and bring him along to a point of view in which he would see that the things he was saying were just plain untrue. And he, didn't, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't take it. And there were moments in those conversations when I felt anger with him and I addressed him very directly and strongly. And I think it was appropriate. I think there are times when you should experience anger. I think of another occasion. This was in our old church when I led a home group with my wife. And we had, that home group was predominantly made up of young people who were roughly of student age. And um, a, a couple had joined the church and they were probably around the age of 30. And the husband, um, it was a strange situation. The husband wanted to come to, to life group. The wife didn't come. And he started joining our, our, our home group midweek. And we were very happy to welcome him into our home, to feed him, to, for him to become part of the community. And then it turned out, it kind of transpired that he was uh, meeting up for coffee with one of the young women in, in the life group. So next time I saw him at church on Sunday, 
I confronted him. I was in his face about it. I was asking him the questions and also just telling him it was out and out inappropriate. I never saw him again. He never showed up at church again. But I can tell you that I think that, that, that there are, there's a moments like this when anger is absolutely right and appropriate. When, you, when you're aware that someone is damaging themselves or damaging the people of God, anger is appropriate. But listen, the force of what Paul says here when he says, be angry, fine, you have permission from time to time when anger is righteous, be angry. It is quickly qualified by three caveats. He says, be angry and do not sin. I know that when I feel anger... With my children, for example, I am, I, there's a risk that I will sin, that I will say, I, I will act in anger in a way that is not helpful, to their, to, to, uh, that is unsanctified. Be angry and do not sin, he says. He says, don't let the sun go down on your anger as well, which, you know, I don't think this is meant to be interpreted in an overly literal way. I mean, one commenter just said, you know, it's not as though the people in Greenland who have these sort of 19-hour days have a longer opportunity for anger than us who are living nearer to the, the equator. Let's not be overly literalistic about this, but the, the principle is don't stew in your anger. Deal with it, either internally or in conversation with the other person. And then he says, do not give any opportunity to the devil because the enemy loves to come in where anger is festering. So sometimes it's right and appropriate to feel a measure of anger. You see someone hurting themselves or hurting others, anger might be the righteous, godly response. But deal with it very quickly, brother, sister. Lest you end up in the wrong. Lest you cause harm to others. Lest you cause damage to the church as a community. We need, in other words, to restore peace quickly. Is your heart at peace right now with everybody in this church family? Can you say that you are not harboring any anger or resentments? Let us not allow resentment to destroy us. Let me ask you another question as we look in. Is your heart generous? Now here's how Paul goes on. He says in verse 28, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that we may have something to share with anyone in need. Now, I think it's quite unlikely that, you know, I certainly haven't heard any examples in our church family of people being thieves, of stealing from one another. And if we did hear of it, we would deal with it quickly. I don't think it's impossible. You know, some years ago, this is no advertisement for a weekend away, but some years ago on a weekend away when I took a bunch of uh, people in their 20s away in our old church for a weekend, um, it, it transpired that someone had stolen a phone. An iPhone. This was back in the day when iPhones were relatively new and, and uncommon. And someone nicked one. And uh, you can just imagine the meeting the next morning when I addressed people. And uh, the fire of God was present in that meeting. And thankfully, over time, that phone reemerged and the person uh, brought it back to light and things were, were settled there. But I don't think really that the force of it speaks to us primarily around being an out and out thief. Listen again to what he says here. He says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So what this talks about is about the posture of heart. That you move from being someone who's a taker to someone who's a giver. And I can think of so many ways in which giving enriches 
The life of the church as a community, when we have a posture of generosity, how can I give? Who can I give to? Where do I see need? Think about, for example, your life groups. You meet every week in homes to eat a meal. I want to just take a moment to honor our leaders who open up their home in a sacrificial way every week and serve meals at their own expense, receiving no reimbursement from the church. And I honored that generosity. And I want to ask you, when you partake in these home groups, are you a giver or a taker? Do you just come and eat the meal and then leave the dirty dishes to the side? Or are you someone who's constantly contributing, bringing food, offering to cook, there to participate in a generous-hearted way? I can think of so many examples of the ways that generosity enriches church life so that you become a giver rather than a taker. You know, you go out for a meal or a drink with people in the church and you see someone there as a student. Never let them pay. Never let them pay. Because obviously, they have no income. They're poor. <laughs> when you think about your, your, your social life and your family life, as a, perhaps you're a married couple or a family, always involve people who are relationally poor. If there's someone who feels like they're out on a limb, maybe they're single, maybe they don't have many friends in the church, be a giver. Bring them into your community. Whenever you see a family struggling, you see them, you know, struggling to make ends meet. Maybe the single mothers in the church. Consider buying a bag of groceries at now and then to just give out of the generosity of your heart. When I was um, transitioning from having been a full-time student to a part-time student, and I was doing an internship in our, in our old church, and um, they weren't really paying me, not very much at least. And um, I was also had my fees to, to, to pay for for my, my, the college where I was at. I, I gave no thought to how I was going to find the money. I don't know what was wrong with me. I was slightly inept at the time. I gave no thought for where the money was going to come from for my fees. And then one of the deacons in the church, a man I didn't know very well, wrote to me and said, for the next two years while you're studying, my wife and I want to pay for you to study. We're going to cover all your fees college. And I, that has always lived with me. I think, wow, the church is meant to be a people where you see, you see, you see gifts and, and, uh, and people who are wanting to run in the call of God, lavish them with generosity so that they can be free to do what they're called to do. And if the Lord has blessed you with more wealth, wow, that's extraordinary because you have more to give away. What a blessing that is to, to be able to liberate and enable the work of God in the world through generosity. When you, see, when you go to a wedding and the couple are newlyweds, don't go through the John Lewis gift list and think, well, I'll get one fork. Or get a fork, shall we? Let's, let's buy one towel. What's the cheapest thing on here? Let's list them by price in, in, in ascending order and go for the top one, the, the cheapest thing on the list. Be lavish in your generosity, especially when that couple are young, they're starting out in life and they don't have much. Be lavish in your generosity. Help get them off to a good start. Be sacrificial. When you see a couple who, who haven't been out on a date night for a long time, give them your credit card. <laughs> Tell them to go to one of the nice restaurants in town and spend as much as they want. I'm not hinting. We're absolutely fine. I'm talking about for the blessing of others here. The spirit is it's a posture, friends. It's the posture. Don't let the thief steal. He says, don't be a taker. Give. And not only give, but work harder so that you can be promoted, earn more money so that you can give more. 
Do you work hard at your job? Wonderful. God's going to enable you to give more to other people. What a blessing you can be to the life of the church as a family. Is your heart at peace? Is your heart generous? Let me ask you a third question. Is your heart pure? He says in verse 29, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Now this word corrupting, let no corrupting talk come, come out of your mouths. The word means rotten or putrefied. It's a word that occurs a couple of times in the Gospels on Jesus' lips. He uses it, for example, around an example of um, someone fishing and sorting out the, the, the fresh fish from the dead, rotting ones, the bad ones. It's a word that occurs in, uh, in, in Luke chapter 6 as well, when he's um, speaking about the good tree and the bad tree. And he says this, he says, no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. He says, a good tree can't bear, bear rotten or corrupted fruit, and a corrupted tree can't bear good fruit. And he's talking about how a, a tree can become diseased and, and full of, of, uh, of rot, using it as a metaphor of our lives. So when Paul says here, let no corrupting speech come out of your mouths, what is he speaking about here, friends? Well, I think he's speaking about anything that you say that can affect the health of the church as a family. It may be crude or lewd jokes and thoughts. It could be gossip that quickly spreads, spreads rot. Or it could be criticisms that, 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 that sow those sort of negative, uh, those negative thoughts in the minds of others and quickly begin to rot and dissolve trust and love within the church as a family. Where does the speech originate? And the answer, of course, is, as Christ said in that same passage in Luke chapter 6, it always comes from your heart. He said it very clearly there in that same passage when he talked about a good tree and a bad tree. He said, the good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of the evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So what you are on the inside will come out through your mouth the way you speak. So if you want to speak helpful and not building words, you have to have a pure heart. But insofar as your heart is corrupted by evil thoughts, where you're nurturing um, unhelpful patterns of thought and sitting and ruminating in, in darkness, those things will affect the way you speak. They have to. They will do. They'll come out of your mouth, even if, if you don't want them to. They do. But when you nurture a pure devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ in the inner being, in secret, in the quiet place, through devotion, prayer, confession, submission to the Lord, when your heart is pure, when you love him, your mouth becomes an, an, a spring of life to others. You begin to build others up. There was a story my dad used to love to tell of the the Welsh revival that took place in 1904-1905, when God's Holy Spirit began to move upon many, many people in Wales, and thousands and thousands and thousands became Christians very rapidly. And Wales is known for its industry, and one of the great industries that existed at the time was the coal mining industry. And as these miners, these men who were hardened through tough labor, began to become followers of Jesus... 
their life was changed from the inside out. They're still robust, strong, solid men who, who grafted for a living. But these men were changed. And one of those changes was evidence in the way that they spoke. These men would use uh, small horses, ponies, to go down uh, into the pits to pull carts and wagons and help with the manual labor. And these ponies were used to being instructed in the most vivid, colorful language, the language of miners. They would swear and berate the ponies in order to get them to work. And as these men became followers of Christ, their hearts were so changed that their language began to change and the ponies could no longer understand them. <laughs> it's a true story. And you think, if you want to be the kind of person who builds up the church of God, let your heart be changed so that you are no longer even recognizable. You show up and think, what got into him or her today? So encouraging, so Christ-centered, so full of warmth and, and the joy of the Lord, so ready to affirm and to, and to pray and to encourage and to build others up. That is what God wants for you. And you can't just do it by faking it. It won't last. It has to begin in the secret, the quiet place. Let no corrupting talk come out, come out of your mouth, he says. But only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that may give grace to those who hear. And let one last question to level at you about as you look inwards is this. Is your heart tender and kind? Look at verse 31. It says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Now, when we read that list of words, bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice, what is it that unites all of those words? I think the answer is, of course, that they're all deeply negative, aren't they? Destructive frame of mind and heart and soul that, that just brings, brings everyone down, brings you down. Brings a darkness into the room when you enter it. They're negative words. Now, I know that all of us can go through dark seasons in life when you're going through suffering or when you're going through particular hurts. And when you, I understand life is seasonal. But it's also possible to live in that space, isn't it? What Paul's talking about here, I think, is that a poison can set in. This word bitterness was used to poison. It means there's something like a rot that sets into your soul. Just as in, in our nation at the moment, we have ash trees dying everywhere because there's a, an infection that's spreading against these, among these ancient trees and there's this ash dieback as trees die. So also, when rot sets into your soul, you can cause a kind of dieback in the church. You can bring others down with you when bitterness and anger and malice and these kinds of things live in your soul and take control and dominate who you are as a person. God wants to revive you. He wants to bring the sweetness of the gospel so that the fragrance of Christ marks you as a person from the inside out. And when you put all of this together, the questions that Paul is asking of us, are you peaceful? Are you generous? Are you pure? Are you kind and tender-hearted? You can imagine that if the, if the community is full of such people, that will be a powerful and robust and beautiful community. It's not that it will ever be perfect. 
But a family that's like that is a family that you want to be a part of. You never want to leave. And that's what the church is called to be. So rather than thinking about the person to your left and to your right, think of yourself, brother, sister. Are you such a person? Now, I want us finally and more briefly to to heed the second thing that he says here. If we're looking inwards, he then calls us to look upwards. Let me just explain to you what I mean here. Most of us will find that there's some challenge in these exhortations that we've been exploring. That there's some way in which we could be more at peace, more generous, more pure, more kind and tender-hearted towards others. I think it's true of all of us. We can all imagine ourselves being better versions of ourselves. But it's hard to change. You get stuck in patterns of behavior, ways of conducting, ways of speaking and thinking and acting. You get known for it. And it's difficult to change. And just merely layering on surface-level moralism, okay, I'll go away and be really generous, that kind of attitude is not enough to change your heart because it doesn't affect you from the roots. How does Paul expect us to be transformed? The answer for me, when we look more carefully at this passage, is by the power of the gospel. And more specifically by the relationship that you enjoy with each member of the Trinity, with the Holy Spirit, with the Father, and with the Son. And I want to show you what I mean by that. Think, first of all, about your relationship to the Holy Spirit. comes through in verse 30. He says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Don't grieve the Spirit, he says. If you're a believer... You are inhabited by God's Holy Spirit. It's part of what it means to be a Christian, that the Holy Spirit poured into your life. Now, when Paul says, don't grieve the Spirit, it's a very unusual verse in the the New Testament. It's, It's almost unique. What does he mean here? And I don't think what he means is a threat. It is possible... To so grieve the Holy Spirit that it becomes a threat. We see that in Acts chapter 5 when Ananias and Sapphira are said by Peter to have lied to the Holy Spirit. And God kills them. But I think that the, the context and the language that Paul's using here is really the language of intimacy and of friendship. You know what it is when you upset each other. You upset your friends. And he talks here of having been sealed with the Holy Spirit. He references what he said to us in the first chapter, that you as a believer, having been called into the family of God, he says in chapter 1, verse 13, that in him you also, when you heard the word of the truth, when the gospel of your salvation, so when you became a Christian and believed in him, he says, he says you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who's the guarantee of our inheritance. And for what we know of Paul's understanding of the work of the Spirit in the believer's life He says elsewhere that it's the experience of the love of God being poured into your life almost without measure. It's the happiness that you experienced when you suddenly understood that God loved you because the Holy Spirit testified with your spirit that you're his child. And all the fear was taken away and all the distance was taken away and you experienced intimacy and friendship and closeness with God. You felt like he was with you. You can walk with him. 
Paul's appealing to this when he says, don't grieve the Spirit. He's saying, look, just as you've experienced the love of God poured into your life by the work of the Holy Spirit, you, believer, are called to now be a channel of that same love. So do away with all behavior that contradicts that love. The image I love to use, and I've used it before, is the difference between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. They're joined in the nation of Israel as the Jordan River runs from one to the other. But they're wildly different places. The Sea of Galilee is a normal lake, fed by many tributaries, full of life, teeming with life, massive tilapia that you can catch and eat, surrounded by greenery. It's a living body of water. But the water that flows out of the Sea of Galilee via the Jordan River flows south, south, all the way down the valleys to the Dead Sea and constantly feeds the Dead Sea with that same water, but the sea has no life in it whatsoever. It is a salty, barren wasteland. And ask yourself the question, what is it that that makes these two bodies of water different? Why is one so full of life and the other full of death, even though they are both fed by the same water? And the answer is that the Sea of Galilee not only has water flowing in, but also has water flowing out. The Dead Sea, it all goes in and it never leaves. And so what accumulates in the Dead Sea has such a concentration of minerals and of salt because there's no exit for the water except through evaporation that it is inhospitable to life completely. And for me, that's a a picture of the Christian life. When you have experienced the friendship of the Holy Spirit in your life, the way in which that breeds a living spirituality is through you giving what you've received. When there's an outflow just as there's an inflow, the Holy Spirit pours into your life, but you must then become a channel of His grace and of His affection and of His love for others. You must walk with and by the Spirit. If you claim to be someone who just receives and receives, but then you nurture bitterness and anger and malice and selfishness and all the things that corrupt your soul, you become as dead as the Dead Sea. There's no life in you. Don't grieve the Spirit by whom you were sealed. He sealed you with his love so that you could become a channel of that love. Think about also your relationship to the Father. The beginning of the next chapter, he says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. So having referenced the Holy Spirit, he now references the Father. And what he wants to draw attention to you is this. To to, to use this fact. That you have been adopted by the Father into his family. Be imitators of God as beloved children, he says. And here he's calling to mind what he also said in the first chapter when he said that as God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. In other words, the adopting power of God to take you from being an individual who was outside of the family home, isolated, in the cold, totally alone, now in the home, full of the warmth and love and embrace of the Father, now called a son in the technical sense, an inheritor, someone who belongs. Since you've experienced that belonging, what should be the effect in your life? In other words, what's the mark that you're genuinely part of the family? The answer Paul gives us is that as a beloved child, you want to imitate your father. My three-year-old boy 
we, we had a little ritual that's run for some time now where he, he watches me make my coffee in the morning. I'm a precise person, friends. When I make my coffee in the morning, that coffee is the best coffee you can drink in London. I'll be honest about this. Because I weigh the beans, I grind them myself, and it's, I carefully pour over the beans, and it's, it's, it's absolutely delicious, aromatic, it's wonderful. It's part of the ritual of our morning. And Knox comes alongside me, he climbs on a stool, and he watches me and pays careful attention to everything I'm doing. So much so that my wife, who really doesn't care so much about coffee or how well it's made or whether it's made well, she'll often just ask Knox to make it for her. And there he goes to work. He, he's weighing things, he's grinding things, he's doing pour over. It's quite extraordinary to watch a three-year-old making, um, making pretty high-quality barista-level coffee. <laughs> And he asks, Why, how was he able to do that? And of course, the answer is through the power of imitation. <laughs> Little boys want to imitate their fathers before, of course, they realize that their fathers are not as worthy of imitation as they once imagined. But our Heavenly Father is always worthy of our imitation. He's saying, if you've been called into the family, if you really know that you're a child of the Father, imitate him. And how has he acted towards you? He's lavished you with his generosity and heart and love. That's how you should be postured towards God's people. How can you be anything else? And finally, think about your relationship to the, to the Son of God. He says in the second verse of chapter 2, And walk in love as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now Paul's saying something stunning and compelling about the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. To understand what he says here, you have to know a little bit about the Old Testament background. When the Old Testament believers had their temple in Jerusalem, they were instructed to bring many offerings and sacrifices. They were to burn fragrant incense, and to bring grains and wine and, and meat, animals as sacrifices, some of which were burned upon the altar. And so quite a, a common refrain you read in the legal system that describes God's instructions for these offerings is that they would arise like a pleasing aroma to God. The incense that was burned every day, filling the temple with a pleasing aroma. The smell of the grains and of the animals being burned upon the altar, pleasing the nostrils. All the beautiful smells and aromas of the smoke with the fat mingling on the fire. Beautiful. And that aroma was pleasing to God and was atoning for their sins. You ask yourself the question, in what way did the death of Christ rise to God's nostrils as a pleasing aroma? Of course, it wasn't true in any literal way. It wasn't the actual fragrances of his body and the lacerations of his body upon the cross. It was the posture of his heart that was a fragrant aroma to the Father. That he died in love. That even as he was hated and vilified and rejected and abused and oppressed by humans, by fellow men, his heart was so one of love that he was willing to say and utter the words on the cross, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do, which is what made his death an atoning death. He died in love. Walk in love, he says, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The love of Christ was like a pleasing aroma to the Father, covering over the stench of our sin. 
And therefore the exhortation comes. If you have been redeemed and atoned for by the love of your Savior, now you walk in love. How can you do otherwise? The Spirit has filled you and sealed you. The Father has adopted you. The Son has offered himself on your behalf. Any person who truly believes the gospel and is truly part of the family of God, redeemed and brought into that family, must now, is motivated now to be a channel of the grace of God towards the church, to be absolutely, passionately committed to the body of Christ. And no longer to sit in, in our fear or our isolation or our anger or our resentment or whatever it is that causes you to hold back. You cannot. The Trinity is exhorting and encouraging you. Love the people of God. If you're not a Christian, friend, this can change your life beyond recognition. To know that you belong, to know that you are part of God's family, saved by Jesus, filled with his spirit, can utterly transform you at the individual level, but it also makes you and puts you in the context of being part of God's global family. And if you feel that that's the thing that's missing in your life, can I encourage you, even today, talk to God. Tell him that you are sorry for your sin and ask him to come and fill you with his spirit and join you to his family. For most of us here who already call ourselves believers, let me ask you, friend, have you looked inwards? Is there anything displeasing in you that makes you more of a destructive than a constructive member of the family of God? How does God want you to give yourself in love towards others? Let's bow our heads and pray.